You are listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome, everyone, to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive beatniks and creative renegades who are trying to figure out how to live their best lives and stay sane in the process of that. I'm Leah Burkhart, hostess on the show, and today what I want to talk about is non-negotiables. It's been a topic of conversation that's been coming up with many people who are close to me and in my own life, uh, and it seems like it fits in the sort of umbrella of the themes that I've been talking about more recently with regard to getting comfortable with anger, you know, developing a sense of honesty, moving in the world, and feeling comfortable with what you want and need. And to that effect, then, what I want to go over is, okay, so what are some non-negotiables that we have in our lives? I find that highly sensitive people have a tendency to negotiate away even those things that are non-negotiables. And then we build resentment around it. So uh, I would say that Brene Brown would make a case that we're therefore not holding boundaries around our needs appropriately. And then that's what leads to resentment. So, and I want to talk about our needs as it relates to work, a little bit as it relates to our environment. I'm going to be going through uh, a short schmeal on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, I'm not going to go in too much detail there because I've done some extensive podcasts on those topics in particular. So if you're curious and want to do deep dives into any of those levels, highly recommend that you kind of go into the, oh, what would you call that? A directory table of contents, uh, kind of go down into some of the past podcast episodes. Anyway, so to begin with, non-negotiables, what are they? Well, the short version is they're things that you can't live without or that you've made a decision that you don't want to live without. It's, it's the your must-haves and your can't-stands. And whenever I try and talk about these things, it's really, it, the challenge is in being specific, clear, and not vague and, and sort of woo-woo-y. I don't have any problems with woo-woo stuff. That's where I live and breathe. However, I find that if I'm going to communicate it effectively with other people, I need to be able to use language that is approachable and pragmatic. Because I can't just talk about this fancy stuff. And if it doesn't apply to your life, well, then why talk about it at all? So the first thing I want to touch on is this idea of our core values. This is something that... And I want to say I got it from the minimalists. So if you're curious, it's a fabulous podcast. Check them out. They even have a documentary. Really great couple of dudes. Uh, but they talk about discernment and be- practicing minimalism with regard to what we invite into our lives, both as it relates to material possessions as well as the kinds of experiences that we want to have. And a compass they will frequently use uh, is this concept of being clear about your core values. And I think they pick five. You can pick three or two or ten. I don't really care. But you don't want to pick too many because then you're going to go crazy. I would say if I were to be asked, what are my core values? I would say it includes integrity, which is cheating a little bit. Because to have integrity is really to live in alignment with your values. So it's like I value that and also, okay, great. But what does it mean to walk and talk, walk your talk and live in alignment with your values? Well, My other core values would include health. And when I say health, I don't just mean it 
as in the absence of disease or uh, my fitness score on Fitbit. What I mean is physical, a robust physical health and mental health, mental emotional, a sense of belonging to a community and a sense of feeling healthy, feeling like I'm a part of a healthy society. So it's health in this more holistic sense. I value it in myself and I value it primarily, I value it in others primarily because I find that I'm my best self when I'm taking good care of myself. I find that my, if I don't take good care of myself, my capacity lowers and that which I can bring to my community, to my relationships, etc., diminishes. And so as a result, it's like if I don't take care of my health, everything else is sort of moot. So I value health. I value my relationships. Uh, I value personal growth. And I value purposeful work. You know, the dharma, you might even call it. So those are my core values. Everybody's got, I would say, a set core of values. I listed my five it's worth you thinking about what yours are because they may look vastly different from mine. And a really good example of how this might create friction and conflict with people would be if you have two human beings who are just each one of them feeling like the other is incomprehensible. Nine times out of ten, I find that it's simply because they have a different set of core values. I find this is often true politically, just as an example. So when you look out in the world and you're looking at, say, the Republicans versus Democrats in the United States of America... You know, we have a t- like you'll notice that Democrats will make fun of Republicans, not all Republicans, but I mean, uh, candidates. They'll say, oh, my God, it's such a uh, it's not eloquent. It's not intelligible. And that's fine. But what that's pointing to is that this person who's speaking with some bite clearly values uh, intellectualism and values uh, curiosity very likely the case and then conversely you might have another person and these are just very superficial examples I'm I'm by no means trying to make caricatures of these two but on the flip side you might hear Republicans sort of make fun of Democrats because they're so elitist and they're so intellectual that the intellect overcomes the outcome so it's almost like I don't care about your fancy schmancy talk I just care about results And what you're getting a hint at there is different values. And there's nothing wrong with either set of values per se, but where we get into a big hot mess is when neither party can understand the value of each other's value system. And so when talking about what your non-negotiables are, one of the first places you want to hit is what are my core values? Because those core values are going to be the compass by which you use to navigate any of the actions of your lives like if you're going to engage in a new set of habits or behaviors they've got to be in alignment with your values and I know I've spoken at length about behavior change I'll often say okay well if you want to change your behavior you really need three things and this is in accordance with the IMB model you need information enough information to be able to identify what changes you need to make so as a really simple example if you're trying to lose weight you need to know enough information to identify the behaviors that need to change. It's probably going to be food and movement. Okay, so that's the information. Then the next thing you need is motivation. What is your why? And then finally, you need the skills. Okay, so that why piece is almost always going to be linked to your values. And let me tell you, if you do not have a clear sense of your core values, any kind of behavior change is going to be tremendously difficult. 
Because if you can't link whatever changes you're trying to make in your own life to a larger value system, it doesn't have enough fuel to get you across the finish line. So those are my core values. The first thing I would implore you to do would be to identify your own. Okay, from there, great. You've got your core values. What does that have to do with your non-negotiables? Well, first I'll start with work because I feel like work is distant. It's not close to home. It's quite literally in the public sphere. When it comes to work, a lot of us have this assumption that, oh, we need a certain amount of money, which is true, but only in so much as it gives you the money that you need to live your life well. I know people who feel wealthy when they make $50,000 or less a year. And I know people who feel poor and they're making six figures. Poverty and wealth is so by definition to be wealthy is to be spending less than you make so that whatever it is whatever lifestyle you want to have if the amount that you're spending is less than the amount that you're bringing in you have wealth wealth is the accumulation of a surplus amount of money that you've pocketed away for yourself so but <laughs> like you do need an amount of money and a lot of us might make an assumption about how much we really need but that actually brings in why I admire the minimalists so much because we often make these assumptions and many of the times we're wrong about how much we really need what our real non-negotiables are this is why I'm so enamored with minimalism and with essentialism those are often used interchangeably and what I would just call discernment I personally don't make that much money but I also don't spend very much money and I value time why do I value time? Because I value my health. So for me, having time to myself is linked with my value around health and wellness. It's also linked with my value around my relationships. Because if I don't have the time to recharge, me being introverted and me being someone who is more sensitive and therefore needs more quiet time to myself, if I don't get those things, my relationships suffer. So I've discovered for myself that I am willing to forego more money if it means having more time to dedicate to those values. These are things that are important to know. And as such, I've limited the amount of stuff that gets into my that, that I bring in and the amount of money that I need to spend on myself. And I notice personally that when I'm not at capacity, when I'm not taking really good care of myself, I'm even more likely, by the way, to compensate through consumption, either by consuming more food or consuming stuff. So that's sort of a tangent, but anyway. So you would think that if it's true that we need an amount of money, we all do. You know, I think there was a great line that may have even come from the documentary Happy or Happiness. I think it was Happy. And a gentleman said, you know, anyone who tells you that money can't buy you happiness has never had to go dumpster diving for their next meal. But anyone who tells you that money can has probably never spent that much, has not yet spent very much time at Wall Street or in Tokyo, Japan. So, you know, where death by overwork is an actual thing. Forgive me, I don't remember the term. But if you're trying to create a lifestyle for yourself that is sustainable, you need to be really clear. What is the amount of money that I actually need to make? All right, so great. You would think, though, that if that's your starting point, Let's say that your boss wanted you to increase your productivity. You would think that the best way for him or her to achieve that feat would be to just give you more money. And that's true so long as the thing you're trying to achieve is simplistic and mechanical. So if your job is to make more widgets and the boss says, I will pay you a 10% increase 
if you're able to make this many more widgets. It's extremely motivating. It's a very specific number. It's a very mechanical task to achieve, and often it works. As soon as the task that is being asked of you, however, it becomes it requires critical thinking, requires creativity, just the opposite happens. Opposite. Just the opposite occurs. So the more money that's offered, it can actually dampen your productivity because it feels like the pressure is on. Wild, I know, but it's in the research. And if you're curious about who's been doing this research, by the way, a gentleman named Daniel Pink, uh, he wrote the book Drive. And in his work, what he discovered is our needs, our non-negotiables, if what you're trying to achieve is a productive workforce, workforce is, well, there are three things. Purpose, a sense that your job is linked with something larger than just this one task. Uh, autonomy, a sense of feeling like you have control over your workload and over the flow of your day. And mastery, a sense that you either have mastery now or are confident that you can develop mastery over time. These are non-negotiables, and it's, it comes up in literature over and over and over again. If what you want to achieve is a productive workforce, your workforce must have these three things. These are the areas you want to help mentor your colleagues on, or your workers, or whoever you identify your team. That's what you want to focus on. So these are our non-negotiables. Oh, check me out. I'm getting little notifications. So if you're at the work, you're in your workspace and you're trying to figure out, I don't understand. I, I feel like I'm making pretty good money, but I just feel like it's soul sucking and it's not even that hard. Or maybe it is really hard. Maybe it's extraordinarily difficult, but it has pieces that you like and pieces that you don't. If you're feeling ambivalent about your job and you're trying to figure out how to get clearer about it, I would invite you to consider in what, which of these areas are being met right now. Do you feel like you have mastery? Do you feel like you have autonomy? And do you feel like you have purpose? If you have all three of those, you've got your needs met. Like those are the non-negotiables. Everything else is extra. And maybe you have other things that need to be added into that list, but this is what the research reports. If you feel like you're getting all of those things met and you're still unsatisfied, that's the time when you want to bring in resources like positive psychology, which includes tasks like practicing gratitude on a daily basis, engaging in the practice of meditation, uh, engaging in better sources of self-care. Because there are plenty of instances when maybe your non-negotiables are being met, but you're being fed a narrative, you're telling yourself a narrative that isn't in fact true. However, if that's not the case, if there are non-negotiables that are not getting met, no amount of practicing gratitude, meditation is going to make that change. What will happen, however, is that engaging in those things will give you capacity to make clear decisions about where to go next. So, because I think I spend a lot of time in many of my podcasts driving home the fact that, hey, you've got to start with yourself. Stop looking out there for your answers. You have to start from within. You have to look for what's going on inside of you as the first source of reef, like of a, a recharge, as opposed to always assuming that if you look outside of yourself, okay, if I just had a different job, a different partner, a different, if I lived in a different state, if I, you know, whatever, if I lost a little bit of weight, if I, whatever the thing is, then everything would magically change. That's not effective most of the time. But if you're really deliberate about this process and you first identify your core values and then you ask in terms of your workload, am I getting, 
Do I have autonomy? Do I have mastery? And do I have purpose? That's when it's really useful to start going like, okay, so this isn't a work problem. This is a me problem. But if those things aren't being met, that's a moment to where you pause and you say, okay, how do I get these things met? What needs to happen? It's identifying those non-negotiables. I'm also going to talk a little bit about environment. And I don't mean environment as in like environmental policy per se. What I mean is your specific environment. And I I bring this up particularly for highly sensitive people and introverts because the environment we, we live in has a pretty hefty impact on us. I would venture to argue it has an impact on everyone. But as Glennon Doyle in her book Love Warrior talks about, those who identify as being more sensitive... She didn't say that she, she didn't call herself an HSP specifically, but she I said that she herself is sensitive. So I'm using this as an example. She said, some people in this world are the canaries. They, they are able to identify subtle shifts in their environment that are wrong, that other people can't detect as quickly. And so what we've had a habit of doing in our culture is outcasting them as being sissies, sissy la la. <laughs> And what she was imploring her readers to do is stop for a minute and and consider the possibility that, no, we're not sissies, we're canaries. We are detecting something that is toxic. And you would fare well to pay attention to what we have to say, because we might save your life. And so when I'm speaking about environment, I, I bring that up particularly for HSPs, who, just as a really quick recap, if you want to figure out if you might be one of these characters, Depth of processing is one trait. Uh, Easily over-aroused is another. And I don't mean, you know, aroused. (laughs) I mean, uh, in terms of your activation level of arousal in your nervous system. We all have a window of arousal that's optimal. So we're engaged, we're intrigued, we're interested, we're curious, but we're not overwhelmed and we're also not apathetic. But an HSP's window is just narrower. Typically the ceiling is lower. We're more easily over-aroused. E is emotional granularity and emotional sensitivity. And I've spoken about this before, but a good chunk of that, I'm now basing that off of Lisa Feldman Barrett's work where she discusses the fact that emotions are just concepts that we build after, you know, after we engage in the process of interoception where we kind of dig into our bodies, identify sensations, and then create a concept that best matches that sort of storm of sensations so if that's true if that's really what's happening when we're identifying our emotions it would make sense that highly sensitive people would have more emotional granularity and more intensity because our nervous systems are detecting everything with a greater intensity and then the final one is sensory sensitivity as in smells sight sound touch etc like those sensations are more acute in a highly sensitive person's body So if those things are true, it would stand to reason that an environment that a HSP were standing in would heavily influence their sense of um, ease, contentment. It would would affect their mental state. And so some non-negotiables that I've heard with regard to environment from HSPs include things like having order, some measure of tidiness, uh, not having a loud environment, not being in a place where there's too many people. Like they would prefer to have, you know, meet in a cafe as opposed to, I don't know, a rock concert. They, they don't want to be in really busy spaces. They, you know, these are all examples of what might be non-negotiables. And this might seem silly and trivial, but if the reality is that these environments tax you, 
it is a non-negotiable, especially if you're trying to communicate these things to people that are, are in relationship to you. So in thinking about your environment, thinking, think about what you need to feel safe. That is a non-negotiable. And now I'm going to move into relationships. Well, no, not, not just yet. I want to talk a little bit about hierarchy of needs. Because again, I'm talking about non-negotiables, which really means needs. So I don't remember where uh, Maslow started, but I know that his hierarchy of needs got expanded. I don't remember which year. But the current pyramid, if you want to call it that, is, you know, the, the concept is this. We have a, a number of needs that need to be met. And if one isn't met, we don't even necessarily mess with the one above it. So here's an example. At the baseline of our needs, Maslow contends that we need to have physiological um, physiological needs met. In other words, do we have food available? Is there water available? Can I get good sleep? That's it. If those things aren't met, we really don't have capacity to move beyond that space. We will be thoroughly preoccupied with that need being met. It is a non-negotiable. From there, once we have those needs met, our next priority tends to be a sense of safety. Okay, great. So I'm getting food. I'm getting water. I'm able to get solid sleep on a regular basis. Am I living in a safe space? And I don't just mean politically, by the way. I mean, is my physical environment physically safe to me? Or am I constantly worried about... Uh, being in a, an abusive relationship? Am I constantly worried about a toxic relationship I might have at my place of work? So it's like I need to feel physically safe, not just can I eat, can I drink, can I sleep? Above that is having a sense of love and belonging. So, okay, so I'm <laughs> my physical needs are met. I feel relatively safe. The next one on that ladder is, okay, but where are my people? Where are my peeps? <laughs> Are they, are there people who, if I were to disappear on this earth, wouldn't care? We need this like a vitamin. There's all sorts of research which shows that infants, well, I don't know about infants, but certainly baby, it was, it was baby monkeys, but I don't remember which type. A, a, a baby monkey was given the option to either spend time with a wiry, hard, cold mimicking monkey so it's not a real monkey but it's just made of metal but it has milk attached or a fluffy soft motherly looking gorilla that's just a stuffed animal but has no milk and the baby went to the, the fluffy stuffed animal every time we will forego some of our baseline needs in many occasions if we think that we might get that love that affection that sense of connection met. And as you're hearing me say these things, I want you to be thinking about how our current environment, that the current space that we occupy, is aggravating these aspects of ourselves. The, our non-negotiables are being asked to be negotiated in many areas. Anyway, though, next one up from that is knowledge. A sense of education, understanding, increasing our intellectual capacity. Above that is aesthetics. So to have a space that's beautiful, to be able to make room in your life for something beautiful, just for beauty's own sake. Above that is self-actualization. So it's like working on personal growth. It's working on, oh God, how would you put this? It's like building self-awareness such that you can improve upon aspects of yourself that are weak and capitalize on aspects of yourself that are already strong. 
And then finally, transcendence. And that's when you're in the arena of the, you know, letting go of self-referential thinking. It's the, you know, I am one with all. It's the, you know, you're in full woo-woo territory by that point. Okay, so these are our hierarchy of needs. And these are what Maslow would would call our non-negotiables. But remember, this will manifest differently for just about every person. And even Maslow himself, when he talked about these things, didn't talk about it in like a gamified way. It's not as though, oh, well, you've met your physiological needs. Now you've leveled up and now you're going to be dealing with your safety needs. And it's also not linear. Like it may be the case that in different points in our lives, we'll sacrifice one that's below and seemingly baseline in an effort to aspire to another. And that's part of being human. You know, humans are messy, nonlinear. They're not, it doesn't, it doesn't work very clearly in those ways. But the, the idea is these are the general, for the most part, statistically speaking, this is how we tend to develop as humans. We start by needing sustenance, then safety, then a sense of love and belonging, then esteem, then knowledge, then aesthetics, then self-actualization, and then transcendence. So if these are our needs, so first identifying your values, then kind of dialing it back and thinking about how that applies with regard to a, a pyramid for yourself. Cool. Okay. Wonderful. Now, how does all of this apply in relationships? Because this is where I'm going to spend a good chunk of the time. There was a gentleman I worked with who said, this wasn't even coming from him. He was quoting someone else, a therapist. And she was saying, especially in romantic relationships, conflicts that come to the fold, especially if they're ongoing, are often an issue of, okay, like you can solve most of them if you can both understand okay what is it that are my wants and what are my needs and conflicts come about most often when both parties have confused those two I have certainly done that I know what it is to think that my needs are being met and to suddenly discover no they're not my wants are being met wants are negotiable needs are non-negotiable and many human beings have a tendency to mix those two we, we gravitate toward the things we think we should need, but in fact don't. And they might be things we want. So as an example, my needs, I, I make jokes a lot. I'm like, I'm basically a glorified dog. And yeah, I make jokes about what it means to be a female dog all day. Like, take a moment, get out the chuckles, and now we move on. So <laughs> I need to be pet, I need to be fed, I need to be walked, and I need to be stimulated. Like intellectually in my case so if you think about when you have a dog at home you know you need to walk your dog you need to train your dog and you know sort of like stimulate their minds you need to feed them (laughs) I mean and you need to pet them give them affection and these I've determined for myself are basically my non-negotiables and they may seem light and easy to meet but oh my dear sweet one no they are not because they are immovable they are my non-negotiables I cannot not have these things and if you don't want to meet them that's totally fine that's not your responsibility it's not your job to read my mind it's my job to speak it so it's really important that you be able to identify what your needs are and then be able to contrast those with wants so a want of mine I discovered later was you know yeah I I want you know to be in a relationship that's I I would I want the guy that I'm dating to be financially solvent that's a want I don't know if it's a need 
I mean, and I say that because I've gotten really, really pretty things from men. And they didn't do a whole lot to feed me. It wasn't, it didn't nourish me. And so for someone that financial security might be a, just a non-negotiable. For me, financial security is relative. Life ebbs and flows. You know, I, I would certainly like to make sure we could work as a team. Um, and again, bringing it back down into the realm of a, like bite-sized bits it's like well I, I want to know that in my relationship whether this is a romantic relationship or whether it's a platonic one do we play well together do we work well together do we fight well and do we recover well so these now become non-negotiables with regard to a relationship so it's like okay now we're getting even further like the way I want to engage with my person do we play well do we work well do we fight well do we recover well you know, am I getting pet? Am I getting like, you know, am I getting pet? Am I getting walked? Am I getting fed? Am I getting stimulated? These are examples and they sound simple, but if you don't really own them and get clear about them, it's going to cause for mayhem in your life with all of your relationships. Okay, that brings me, by the way, to this idea of feeding. So what do we mean by feeding? What is a not like, okay, how, because people get fed in relationships in all sorts of different ways. And I often uh, sort of discuss Gary Chapman's work on the five love languages. I, and I know you're probably getting sick of hearing about this guy, but I love it because I find it also as useful when discussing self-care. But at any rate, the five love languages are physical touch, gifts, acts of service, words of affirmation, and quality time. And generally speaking, according to this guy, you might have one or two. It's not just like you gravitate only to one. And we all, as a general rule, would appreciate any one of them. But there's one or two that will feed us more so than the others. And in my case, touch and quality time are my, my two big ones. So if I'm trying to figure out how to get fed in the context of a relationship, and I'm trying to figure out what my non-negotiables are, well, now I have another set of language, like a new language base to communicate with. I can say, hey, if you really want to feed the bucket that is this relationship for me, you will hold me. You will spend time with me. And if you give me gifts, it's not that I won't appreciate it. It just won't scratch the itch in the same way. I mean, it's lovely. I, I will appreciate it, but it won't nourish me. Um, I would say words of affirmation are certainly very high up there for me as well. So when someone gives me a compliment or is able to say to me in a way I can hear that they appreciate me, that's huge. So these are things that will nourish me. So it's helpful. You might even consider going and taking a quiz on like, what are your love languages? What are ways that you feel nourished and fed? This too will become a part of the language you use around your non-negotiables. And then beyond that, it's also important to know what kind of, how do you attach to people? There's attachment theories used in a lot of psychology circles. And the language in those circles are anxious. You might attach to someone anxiously, like you constantly need to be affirmed that they love you. Uh, there's avoidant, I, I, a constant need for a sense of independence. There's anxious avoidant, where it's like, I love you, go away, come back, go away, come back, go away. It's that ambivalence. And then the final one is secure. Well, secure is, I love you, I trust that you love me, I'm okay, you're okay, no big deal. Now. I think Milan and Kay, in their book, 
how we love did a really nice job of flushing that out with a bit more detail and using a language that's a little easier for the rest of us mere mortals who don't live and breathe the realm of psychology to comprehend. So they talk about attachment styles as like personality types. And in essence, what they say is when we're imbalanced in the context of a relationship, we have a tendency to skew toward one of these areas of imbalance. So one is pleaser. The pleasers are are sort of correlated with that like hyper uh, anxious folks. Like I'm trying to please you. I want to make sure that you like I need to know that I'm pleasing you because if I'm not pleasing you, I'm unsafe and I'm constantly making bids for connection and I need you to constantly be affirming that I'm adding value to your life. Next one is vacillator. That's that ambivalent. Like I want you go away. Come back. Go away. Come back. Go away. Um, I really want the perfect person, but I can never seem to find him or her. Avoider is the hyper-independent type who gets uncomfortable as soon as intimacy becomes a part of the equation. Controller is more of that uh, aggressive type where I need everything needs to go according to my way or else it's not going to work at all. And victim is, I have no power, I have no control, it's all someone else's fault, I'm just a victim. And no one ever stays firmly camped in any one of these, but what we have a tendency to do, in, according to these authors, is gravitate to one sort of imbalance once we're triggered. It's also very interesting because according to the research on this, it may be the case that for the most part you are secure, but maybe you end up in a relationship with someone who's more of an avoidant, and that pulls more of that anxiousness out of you, and suddenly you're acting more like an anxious type. And conversely, if I might be more secure, but if I'm dating someone who is uh, highly anxious, that might pull some of my more avoidant type, like make me try and counterbalance it by being avoidant. So this isn't black and white stuff, but it's worth taking a look at and self-identifying with, okay, well, how do I behave in an imbalanced way when I'm triggered or when I'm feeling threatened? And in essence, what this helps you to identify is what are the things that contribute to my pressure tank going up? And what are the things that keep my fuel tank up? We want to make sure that our pressure tank is under control and it doesn't go too high. And we want to make sure that our fuel tank is sufficiently full and doesn't go too low. So in essence, then, if you're thinking about it with regard to non-negotiables, if as far as attachment theory goes, uh, the Gottmans, so again, another couple who are psychologists, got together and identified, okay, here are the non-negotiables more broadly for couples if you're going to have a successful relationship. You have to make sure you don't show exhibit any of these four things they call them the four horsemen if you want to have like a straight shot to divorce or to a breakup or to whatever a dissolving of this relationship the things that break it fastest include criticism contempt defensiveness and stonewalling and now criticism doesn't mean constructive feedback so i'm not saying you're never allowed to say to your person hey just letting you know that thing you did hurt me that's not criticism or at least not as they're talking about it Criticism that they're referring to is about, it's the difference between you did a bad thing and you are a bad person. So when you're saying, hey, you're not behaving in alignment with your values and I'm just identifying that and I just wanted you to see it and look at it. That's attacking a person, but you're attacking their behavior. And what you're doing is giving them an invitation to look at something that is probably worth looking at. 
If, however, you say, wow, you're such a liar or you're such a, like, you never do this or you always do that and you are a blank, now you're attacking their character. You can't, like, there's no room for growth if they, if, if you say to a human being, oh, you're a liar, well, where's the room for growth? You're, in essence, labeling them and putting them in a corner and making it impossible for them to imagine a world where they would change versus you lied to me. How could you do that? You never do that. That's not that's not in alignment with your values. What were you thinking? Now you're holding them accountable. So that's criticism. To, to say that criticism is part of the four horsemen is not to say you're not allowed to hold your the people in your tribe accountable for their behavior. It just means you're not attacking their humanity. Contempt is that sense of feeling like uh, you no longer even respect this person. Defensiveness is let's say someone does come to you and offers constructive feedback and you immediately get defensive and say, no, it's not me, it's you. You're the, ro- you're the problem. I'm not the problem. You're the problem. You are the issue. So it's defensive. Which, that doesn't, it's not to say that you're not allowed to defend yourself, but it's that defensiveness of, I'm not going to look at what you have to say to me. I'm just going to push it back onto you so that you can be the bad guy and I don't have to look at what I'm doing. And then again, stonewalling is, I'm just not even going to go there. I'm not even going to dignify this with a response. And in essence, what you're communicating is, you're not worth a response. And I want to be clear here too. This does not mean that when you say to your, because there are plenty of people who, especially true of highly sensitive people, uh, where they're, if they're activated emotionally, it's very difficult to communicate effectively. So they might have to say, hey, 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 I, I want to have this conversation, but I'm feeling overwhelmed. I need a minute. Let me gather my thoughts. That's not stonewalling because you've communicated a need. Stonewalling is where you shut up, you close down, and it is clear you are not engaged anymore. And there's no communication with regard to when that might come back online. That's stonewalling. So in terms of non-negotiables, at least in accordance with this couple's research, the Gottmans, they determined that any one of these four, and especially if you're seeing all four of them, it's a very likely scenario. You're going to be leading yourself down the road to divorce or breaking up. So, okay. (laughs) How do we communicate our, because our needs, our non-negotiables are unique. So then how do we communicate what our needs and what our wants are effectively? Well, that brings us into the territory of things like effective communication which if you're not getting bored by this conversation at this point in the game you're a saint but this goes back to different styles where there's passive aggressive passive aggressive and assertive so passive you matter i don't aggressive i matter you don't passive aggressive i matter you don't but i'm not going to own it and then assertive is i matter and you matter and now let's come down and let's negotiate let's talk let's work this out so if you're gonna communicate assertively I think what happens a lot with highly sensitive people is that they really love harmony. They really want peace. And I I think a useful analogy here, and you know, you're going to think I'm silly possibly, or I don't really care. But you, if you have seen the last airbender, so the avatar, you may remember Aang. And if you haven't seen it, go, go binge watch it immediately. It's adorable. (laughs) Um, so in this series, there's four societies, the Fire Nation, the Water Tribe, the Airbenders, and the Earthbenders. But there's one person 
the avatar who is able to bend all four. And his or her role is to make sure that there is balance between all of these four communities. Well, Aang is, but every one of them who was born is often born to a singular tribe, and then they have to master the others over time. Well, Aang is born in the airbending tribe, but as I said, he can sort of master all of them. But the one he has the hardest time with is Earth. And he's talking with his teacher, who's trying to teach Aang earthbending. And Aang just doesn't want to go there. Like he, she's like, I don't understand. I learned firebending well enough and waterbending was okay. And, you know, airbending comes naturally. What is it with this earth stuff that's so hard? And his teacher, in so many words, sort of says, well, your problem is you're too airy-fairy. Like, you're, you're twinkle toes is what she talks, you know, says, accuses him of. It's sort of like you're so preoccupied with going, sort of like avoiding conflict and outsmarting conflict and creating harmony, you're so averse to conflict, that quality in you that might serve you in other areas is not going to serve you here. If you want to earthbend, you have to learn how to stand your ground. You have to learn how to harness that energy. That is the home base of earthbending. And this kind of reminds me of the quote, and this is in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, uh, I'm just going back to it now, and of course I wouldn't find it in enough time. Ah, uh, well. But it's, it's the quote about, you know, there is a time for all things. You know, there's a time to, um, there's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance, there's a time to live, there's a time to die, there's a time for all of these different things. Like, this is the, the, there is no action that doesn't have a place at some point in our lives. There's a reason and a season for all things. And highly sensitive people, much like Aang, have a tendency to be very adept at being adaptable, uh, being accommodating, being collaborative, being creative. They are, in terms of a metaphor, the airbenders of this world in many respects, which is lovely. But sometimes situations in life call upon us and they require us to be firm and to hold the fort down. And to move the earth and say, no, I will stand here and I will not budge from this spot. And I'm going to, you know, make a mountain move if that's what's required. I'm going to bend the earth. That is the energy that we're talking about here. And so that's just part of why I wanted to bring this conversation about non-negotiables up. Because we so commonly will negotiate in areas that we need to be firm in. Not all things in life can be negotiated some things are non-negotiable. And maybe those non-negotiables change over time. That's fine. But at any moment, you need to be able to identify them. And this is imperative for highly sensitive people since this is a a muscle group that so few of them really have learned to hone. And therefore, (laughs) if you're trying to figure out, okay, great, so I, I get the metaphor of standing firm. How do I do that, though? It doesn't have to be that complicated. It's really just... Are you able to say no? (laughs) Are you able to say yes? Are you able to identify, okay, what is okay and what is not okay? In other words, are you able to hold up a boundary? And are you able to do it with a level of compassion? Like, in terms of the four elements of of love, according to Buddhism, if you want to have true love with another human being, there needs to be four elements. Kindness, compassion, joy, and freedom. So you need to be kind to one another. But kind does not mean a lack of firmness. 
It just means being kind, saying it in a way that is easy to absorb. Compassion is, I may not understand what it is to be you, but I understand that you are in pain and I would like for you to have as little suffering in your life as possible. How can I contribute to that outcome? And joy, there should be joy. That doesn't mean that you're not allowed to be sad, but there should be joy through the sadness. And freedom is, I'm giving you the freedom to be yourself. I'm giving you the freedom to take care of yourself. I'm giving you the freedom to identify what your needs are and to come to me so that we can engage in that kind of a conversation. And, you know, this kind of stuff can certainly sound like you have to have these huge monumental conversations, but really that's not it. It's like, even in the research that Gottman's, that the Gottman's talked about, it wasn't some big blowout fight that was the, the end all be all that would break apart these couples. It was an accumulation of many small digs. It was an accumulation of a number of bids for connection that went ignored. So as an example, you might have a couple and, and one and say a heterosexual couple and there's a husband and wife and the husband turns to his wife and taps her on the shoulder and says, hey, look at that ship out there. That's a blah, blah, blah ship. And she goes, oh, that's nice. And she goes back to her book. That was a bid for connection. It was subtle. And her dismissal of it is painful. And if that happens over and over and over and over again, the relationship falls apart. And in the same way, if she, but conversely rather, if he had done that and she looked up and said, oh, that's interesting. How big is it? If she'd gotten curious about it or had even just leaned in, smiled at him, a tap on the hand, like, oh, sweetie, you and your boats. You know, yes, I see the boat. I love that you love boats. <laughs> that's still a kind of leaning into that bid for a connection. So it doesn't have to be perfect, but it's these little moments day after day. You know, building a boundary even isn't about holding, you know, one big event where you say, all right, world, here are my boundaries. You better not mess with them. It's a series of small life choices. Um, and there was this really lovely moment with uh, the guy that I'm seeing and we're, you know, walking and he's walking with me. And I'm, of course, I have a lot of history where uh, not just men, I think people, I, and I honestly think this may have something to do with the fact that I attract people who are very accommodating. So it's a nice thing. But the downside is some of these folks were accommodating um, in the sense that they were they were accommodating too much. They were not holding firm to their non-negotiables. They weren't holding healthy boundaries for themselves. And so they would say, yeah, sure, let's do this or do that because I wanted to. And then they would resent me later. So that's my history and that's my challenge around this stuff. And so I'm saying, I'm like, we really don't have to go on a walk. We really don't have to go on a walk. We really don't have to do this thing. And he, of course, is looking like, I honest, honestly, I would not do this thing if I didn't want to. Like, trust me. I'm like, all right, that's fine. And we walk up. And at one point, I'm thirsty and I want something to drink. And I see this little, you know, those drive through cafe. They're not even a cafe. It's just a little drive through coffee dispensary thing. And, uh, I'm not in a car, I'm obviously on foot, and I, in all of my absurdness, go up on foot to the drive through window. The woman was very accommodating, and I couldn't make up which, my mind which drink I wanted, so I ordered two, a matcha latte and a uh, cucumber mint tea, um, or some sort, and I, I get them, and I, I, I approach him, and I say, hey, I got these two, because I couldn't make up my mind, would you like a sip? And he looks at me, like, I love you, Leah, but... I'm not drinking that fucking tea. Uh, and pardon my language if you didn't like that, ladies and gentlemen, but that was his words verbatim. And I loved it. 
because it was simple. It wasn't, he wasn't attacking me. It wasn't said with any bite. It was just very, uh, yeah, you're, you're great, but no, I'm not drinking that tea. There's no chance I'm doing that. That is a way of communicating a non-negotiable. It is that simple. It's like, no, I don't want to do that thing, period. Communicating a non-negotiable can be something as simple as, listen, I need to eat. I need to eat now. This isn't something that I can negotiate. Like, uh uh-uh. It's those little moments over time. Listen, I need to have this conversation with you. And if you can't do it now, I need it to be soon. It's a non-negotiable. Or I was speaking with a friend of mine who they're currently, she's with her husband and the two of them were trying to identify, like there's a number of projects going on in the house. And it's just like, oh no, like what, all of the things are in disarray. And then he brought another project in and she's just about lost it. She's like, I can't live like this anymore. I need, you know, and of course an explosion happens and he's confused because it's been a while since, you know, this stuff has been accumulating. And, and she says, I need to have a washer and dryer at least that functions before we can bring in any more projects. Like we just can't keep bringing more and more projects. And okay, this was clear. It was non-negotiable. So this is what I mean when I say that these things can move and change. And again, like first world problems, I need a washer and dryer, but it was more of a, I can't do any more before we finish this first thing that we've done and committed to. So non-negotiables. It doesn't have to be a be-all, end-all. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to be this wildly uh, like impactful conversation. But it just needs to be a series of those where you say, these are my non-negotiables, and I will not negotiate. And as I've said, that's really tough for a lot of HSPs. And so then what can highly sensitive people, or really anyone, do if you're trying to cultivate your ability to communicate effectively about your non-negotiables? What I, this is part of why I'm interested in both health coaching as well as life coaching. Before I work with anyone on big life changes, the first thing I ask them is about their physical capacity. Because if you're not physically well, if you're not regularly getting sleep, if you're not eating nourishing food, if you're not moving your body, it's really, you're not at capacity. And even in the realm of yoga, and I mean the philosophy of yoga, not just can you downward facing dog, but they will make, like the first chapter, the whole chapter in the Yoga Sutras is all about regulating the body. And they say that because once you've regulated the system, now you've built yourself in a measure of capacity to be clear about what your wants are versus your needs, about what your system needs to remain in homeostasis, and to what extent you can test the boundaries of what you can sacrifice for the greater good. You know, maybe sometimes we do give up a piece of our non-negotiables as long as we understand that it's like uh, in terms of a non-negotiable as an example um, maybe I make a decision that I, I take a job that is not meeting my need for purpose autonomy and mastery but I'm doing that temporarily for x period of time and it's in the context of a larger plan where I will get to have that thing so it's not like non-negotiable means never will negotiate at all but it's, it's understanding. It's like, where is the point where I'm going to put my foot down and say, no more, I, no mas, <laughs> uh-uh. You know, and how do you lean into that ability to get, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested. I don't want that. I'm not drinking your effing tea. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> nope. So much nope. How can you do that in when people ask you to take on a project at work? How can you do that when you're negotiating with a loved one? 
How do you do that when you're negotiating with yourself about whether or not you want to remain in relationship to this person? You know, several of the women in my life are in this position where they're having to come to terms with, hey, maybe I don't want this relationship anymore. And they'll say, well, he's working on these things. One example is, uh, you know, a woman whose husband yells when he's upset and she said, I just can't. I've had experience in an abusive relationship. I understand that people yell, but it's a non-negotiable for me. I need you not to yell. You need to figure out a way to lower the volume of your voice. If you will not do that, I will not stay. And now maybe that's unreasonable for him. Maybe for him, he's saying, hey, I'm working on it. You got to give me more time. But where she's saying is, nope, this is a non-negotiable. If you cannot do this, I understand and I will not hold it against you, but I also cannot stay. It's a non-negotiable. Highly sensitive people struggle with it, but it is imperative that we learn to identify it. Because while it's great to be able to airbend in the metaphorical world that we live in, it is just as important to know when it's appropriate to hold firm. So some questions to be pondering for yourself. You know, what are your non-negotiables? What are your must-haves in life, in a relationship, in a job? And what are your can't-stands? A really close friend of mine offered up this tidbit of advice. She said, you know, whatever the context is that you're writing down, your must-haves and your can't-stands, you know, write a list of 10 things that you must have in a relationship or in a job or whatever. And then write a list of the 10 things that you can't stand. Like it is, I just will not tolerate it. Once you have 10 in each, live based off of your top five and understand you won't get all 10. (laughs) And maybe those things fluctuate throughout time. Like maybe the things change places in that top 10, but you only are gonna get the five. So I thought that was a very useful sort of practice. And then of course the other practice is being able to use the tools of assertive communication. And this, what I would say, especially for HSPs who have a tendency to be very uh, compassionate, well, not necessarily, there's plenty of HSPs that are just obnoxious, Uh, but they are sensitive to other people's feelings, sometimes selfishly so, because if I feel your feels and your feels are uncomfortable for me, well, you know, then I have to deal with that and I don't really want to. So in terms of how to go about engaging in assertive communication softly, what I often implore people to do is say, hey, this is a thing I love about you. So here's an example. You might have a couple and one of them is gregarious and um, flirtatious even and just a, a butterfly of socialness. <laughs> and the other is more introverted and reserved. And they each love that the other what the other offers. Maybe, you know, the introvert loves that she can partner with someone who can work a room. And the extrovert loves that he's or she's with someone that um, will, will pause and reflect and listen. But there are times when the shadow side of each of those characteristics are going to come to the surface. And so it might be something as simple as, oh, sweetie, I love that you just walk into a room and light it up. I will say, though, there are times when you go a little far and it can almost look like it's flirtation with other people. And it makes me uncomfortable. So if there's something that I, 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 the request I would make of you is to just maybe be a little discerning with the amount of touching and jabbing and sort of eye batting at people of prospective mates or people that might be flirting back with you because it really makes me uncomfortable. It's okay. Number one, what I love about you, it's, it's kind of a compliment sandwich, but not really. It's sort of, Hey, I, I, I can identify that this is something that is valuable. Also, the one way this is manifesting here, this one behavior, is hard on me. And so my request that I'm going to make of you is this. 
just that three-step process. And it can come up in any context. I love that you're an easygoing person. I really do. I will say, though, I really like having a clean kitchen. And sometimes you're so go with the flow that the kitchen just, the dishes, like, you know, just pile up. And I understand that it's not as important to you that the kitchen be clean, but it is important to me. And I really, I'm so exhausted by always doing my dishes and your dishes. So if you could do me a favor and, I don't know, whatever the solution would be, do the dishes Monday, Wednesday, Friday, do your dishes at the time, whatever. If you could do that, it would mean a lot to me. And then finally bookending it at the end and saying, and don't forget, I really appreciate you. And then once that has been delivered, following up. You know, whether if they engage in that behavior saying, wow, I'm so grateful. Thank you. I really appreciate that you're doing this for me. And if they don't do that thing, then it's about coming back and revisiting. Hey, I might have come at you pretty soft the last time, but this really is a non-negotiable for me. I need some measure of order in my life. And this one little section of my life needs to be clean. I need to, you need to help me with this. And if you can't, I understand, but this is going to continue to be an issue. This is a non-negotiable. I don't know that anyone would base a non-negotiable in their relationship as like a dish. But I will say there's a couple I know where it was like a little nook, the coffee nook in their their space. And he said, babe, I need to be able to get to this corner and pour, you know, work in this space as if I were blind. Because until I get my coffee, the world is a dark, dark, sad, angry, horrible place. And some of that will leak onto you. And then once I do get my coffee, I'm a human again. So please don't make me work at this section of my house. And she made the mistake or being human and she moved it around. And then he had to say again, okay, I know what you thought I said was that it's important to me that this space be tidy. But what I really, really mean is that I need to be able to work in this space as if I were blind. I was not being hyperbolic. And she got it. She's like, oh, okay, I get it now. Thank you. So this is what I'm talking about when it's like being clear. This is a non-negotiable and using that language. So questions to be thinking about for yourself. What are my must-haves in life? Whether in what in, in what areas? In a job, in a relationship, whatever. What are my can't stands? You know, what helps nourish me in a relationship? What are the things that deplete me and cause friction? And how might I communicate? Like, what are the things that are salvageable in this situation? And what is the behavior I'm asking this person to change? Because you never want to come at someone and say, well, this is a non-negotiable for me. And you're screwing, you're a screw up. It's like, no, 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 That's now attacking their humanity. What you want to do is simply talk about behavior. So I hope this was helpful. Uh, I've certainly found it to be helpful for myself in constantly revisiting these themes. Because if you can't, get clear on what your non-negotiables are, well, you're not going to be as effective. You'll always be that imbalanced avatar who can only bend three of the four elements, and you'll never restore balance to the world. And no one wants a half-baked hero, right? I mean, okay, that was kind of mean, but you get what I'm saying. As I said, hope it was helpful. If you have any questions, you can email me at leah at thehealthysensitive.com. You can also get access me through my website that is www.thehealthysensitive.com and other than that all I can tell you is that uh thank you for your time and uh bye